Hey everyone, welcome to Data Brunch with ICPSR. If you love data, this is going to be food for thought. I'm Dory. And I'm Anna. We're recording these episodes live from our remote offices, so please excuse cameos from canine colleagues, kids in class, and other unexpected moments. Dory, I wanted to give a quick shout out. I just found out about a summer program class that I really want to take um, and I wanted to tell you about it and to everybody who's listening too. Um, if you haven't been to our summer program, it's a it's a total blast. Um, the summer program is a training opportunity. And one of our goals is to kind of help expand the analytic skills for um, people who are using data. So that may be graduate students, that might be faculty, that might be research scientists, it could be people from the public sector. You don't have to be a data analyst to come to our summer program. I am not a data analyst and I loved our summer program. The class that I took was phenomenal. Um, And we have journalists and librarians and all kinds of professionals coming every year. Um, And this year, of course, it's all virtual, which makes everything uh, even easier to come to. Um, But I was looking at our summer program classes, and the first short class is going to be, it's called Rachel, Rachel, (laughs) it is not called Rachel, it is called Racial Identities and Politics, and it's taught by Ashley Jardina from Duke University. Um, Dory, do you know her work? I am not familiar. Sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. I think that you do actually, and you don't realize you don't know. I know that. The, I know the name. Yes, we've we have talked about this before, and that was why I completely flipped when I realized that she is teaching this class. Okay. Um, so you probably, I, I think we were talking about this about her book, which is called White Identity Politics. Okay. Um, and the workshop, it just looks it it sounds amazing. So the description is. Um, that this workshop will focus mostly on the nature of racial identities across different racial groups, and it will consider the ways in which racial identities have become more or less salient components for measuring, uh, or excuse me, hang on, and it will consider the ways in which racial identities have become more or less salient components of American political discourse um, over the over the last decade or so, which is just fascinating. Um, and particularly, it's going to cover the best practices for measuring identities using survey methods um, and looking into the theoretical expectations for how for which those identities are associated with different political preferences and behaviors. So I just think this is completely fascinating, especially thinking about the elections and, you know, how the political climate has changed over the last years. Um, I, I just, I completely flipped when I saw this class coming up. Um, I'm, I'm going to see if my boss will let me take it because holy wow, it sounds incredible. All right. Do we want to talk about unicorns here? Let's talk about unicorns. (laughs) (laughs) Dory, happy National Unicorn Day. Happy National Unicorn Day to you too, Anna. You know, I was going to look this up. Let me do a quick search. Okay, look at this. We have 33 studies that have something to do with unicorns. Is that (laughs) I'm not surprised either, but it is so... It is. This is ICPSR. You can find data on anything. Um, Wow, fascinating. I want to see those uh, variables, though. We might have some 
really good social media posts coming up. <laughs> yeah, it's totally. Um, we'll link to this search in the show notes because I just think it's so fun that there's data on unicorns. Some of it, the National Study of Learning Mindsets, I would be really interested to know what that, uh, what that data was. Mm-hmm. Um, very cool. So, um, of course, in data and current events, not only is it National Unicorn Day, but of course, data is being used in um, in recent papers and such, and we always like to talk about um, where we're finding ICPSR data um, that is being used uh, out, out in the real world. So, um, so there is a recent paper that uses ICPSR data, um, and the paper is titled Misogynistic Tweets Correlate with Violence Against Women. Um, and I think that this is a really important paper to be bringing up because this is a paper that's looking at how social media is affecting the real world. Um, So this paper is in the journal Psychological Science, and the paper is by researchers Blake, Odin, Leon, and Denson. And again, that paper is called Misogynistic Tweets Correlate with Violence Against Women. And specifically, these researchers were looking at if exposure to misogynistic tweets would predict future domestic and family violence. Um, And the researchers, oh, (laughs) you might hear my dog in the background. Um, Katie is incensed that uh, that people looking at tweets would be uh, affected by this to do harm to their own families. And I am too, Katie. Um, The researchers here used the FBI Uniform Crime Reporting Program data. So that's something that's available at ICPSR. Um, And they looked at offenses against the family and children. um, And they looked at that along with geolocated Twitter data um, on misogynistic tweets. So this is just a a totally fascinating paper. If you're interested in reading this or on doing similar research, um, you can, of course, find out more about this in our bibliography of data-related literature, which we will link to in the show notes. Yeah, you know, uh, it really gives a different, um, puts a different spin on some of the things that you see on social media, and you can see how, um, how it affects things in the real world, or how how it correlates to things in the real world. Yes, totally. And if it's, you know, I mean, affecting children, that's just breaks my heart. Yeah, I also found it interesting, this is kind of um, random for me, but like, so social media, Twitter is the one I have my profile pictures and Twitter is the only one where I'm not smiling because that is Twitter for me. It's oh. not the place where you go for smiles. It's just really, um, sorry, Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like hardball in there. Or should I say dodgeball in there? You know, where, um, it, it is, it's different from the different platforms and, um, and behavior is even different, I think, on Twitter. Um, yes. Yeah. So. And it's, I mean, it's fascinating to hear that you have even changed your behavior because of the way that your, you know, the algorithm that you are seeing, the things that you're seeing because of Twitter's algorithm have changed mm-hmm. the way that you personally behave on that mm-hmm. platform. That is really interesting. Yeah. I have to put on my, uh, my game face when I go out there on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. 
All right, so we also have um, some new and updated data. We always do, but we we like to share what new data is available on because ICPSR is known for a lot of things, and one of those things is being a really great data resource. Um, so if you need data, if you're a student and you're looking for data for your papers, or if you're a researcher, um, if you're a journalist, you can use these data for articles. Um, so some of the new data that came out, and we have new studies that are coming out all the time, but one interesting one that just recently came out is uh, called Project Positive Attitudes Towards Health, and this is in Michigan in 2017. Um, and this is part of a larger study which was supported by the National Science Foundation, and it includes some really interesting topics. So it includes general health um, and also mental health. Uh, as well as illicit drug use and healthy risk, or excuse me, health risk behaviors, healthy or not, um, sexually transmitted diseases, HIV, sexual orientation, and healthcare service utilization, um, as well as sociodemographics. So if any of those is something that you're interested in or that you're doing research on, um, this could be a really great study for you. We also wanted to say there are new updates to the Chitwan Valley Family Study, um, Changing Social Context and Family Formation in Nepal. And this study is particularly useful because it is so long running. Um, these data include 1995 to 2017. And in the updated data, we have data on the influence of changing social contexts on family formation behaviors as well as marriage and childbearing and contraceptive use. Um, so this is all incredibly interesting data if you are looking at families um, and international families. Um, and this is also particularly interesting thinking about our guest today, who will be talking about maternal health and stress levels and how that affects babies. So Dory, I will let you take it from here. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Uh, we are really excited to have ICPSR's Tamara Kawasmi here. Uh, Tamara is a data project assistant at ICPSR, and Tamara is here to talk to us about a recently published paper uh, titled Maternal Stress During Pregnancy Alters Fetal Cortico-Cerebellar Connectivity in Utero and Increases Child Sleep Problems After Birth. So there are a lot of really good keywords in there that I'm interested to hear about, uh, especially as a mom. So welcome to Mara. Thank you, Dory. It's an honor to be here. So can you tell us more about your paper today? Sure. So um, it is a mouthful. And in short, it just means that we are going to talk about baby brains today. So, baby brains. Yeah. Yep. Well, at first, I would like to just give a shout out to all the folks that worked hard on this paper, um, especially uh, Marion Vanden Heuvel, Jasmine Hacht, Benjamin Smarr, uh, Lance Kriegsfeld, Jean Barcelona, Kauzar Hijazi, and Mariah Thomason. It's a lot of folks that worked on this paper, so shout out to all of them and their hard work. 
Um, and so I guess we can start off with the purpose of the paper. So it was, um, we were just investigating the relationship between maternal stress and negative affect uh, during pregnancy. And what we found was that high maternal negative affect and stress during pregnancy is associated with decreased cerebellar insula functional connectivity um, in fetuses and increased sleep problems in toddlerhood. Um, and what's more fascinating is that our results on mother-reported sleep suggest that males are actually more at risk of developing sleep problems in response to prenatal exposure to maternal stress later in life. Um, and we didn't actually see the same pattern in females, so that was definitely something that we thought was very interesting. Um, and in layman's terms, just to summarize what I just said, um, what this means is that uh, being stressed during pregnancy could prove to affect a child's sleep behavior even years after they're born. Well, we must make sure to get this podcast out to um, the audiences where new parents might be because this is really intriguing. Thank you. So you've already told us a little bit about the story behind uh, your paper, what make tell us uh, more about uh, some of the stories that you've been able to uncover during your work? Yeah, it, it's a great story because um, we're starting to see how the fetal brain develops. Um, we're able to find out whether or not they're at risk for developing problems after birth um, and maybe even solving those problems before they're born. Okay. And would you say that this is a unique project? Well, what oh, yes. makes it particularly unique? Yeah. So what makes this unique is that we're starting to see um, what the fetal brain looks like. So we're using functional MRI to map out the patterns of activation in the different regions of the fetal brain network. And so we're looking at more than just the physical brain. We're looking at how the fetal brain is communicating and making connections in utero uh, by taking an image of the entire system. That's intriguing. How did you get into this type of research? Well, at the time, so I was um, an undergrad and I was studying public health. Uh, I was also studying medical anthropology and nutrition science, just trying to get an idea of what it is I wanted to do with my life. Um, and when I wasn't in class, I was working at Beaumont Hospital in the nutrition department, um, serving food to patients, families, doctors, staff, the whole hospital. I think that I'm probably the only person a patient was happy to see, uh, mostly because I was always there with a meal and a conversation, and no one was ever really upset to see me unless I forgot dessert. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, a job posting had been sent around um, that a neuroscience research lab was looking for an assistant, and I really wanted the job. And so when I got the call, I was pretty much over the moon. So you talked about... Um... Let's just kind of back up a little bit. You talked about um, delivering food to people. So since this is data brunch, tell us some of your favorite <laughs> food memories from those days. Um, well, there's a lot, um, you know, delivering food. I was going to patient rooms and handing them their trays. And a lot of the times folks at that point may have been in the hospital for days or weeks at a time. And so sometimes I would get to know these people and just come in every day, getting a good conversation with them, checking in to see if they needed anything. Don't tell anyone, but sometimes I would sneak in an extra jello cup, um, <laughs> just to, <laughs> you know, make their day a little bit better. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that the most memorable times working in that position was just having those conversations with people and just getting to know them because some people just really needed to talk. I mean, it can get really boring just sitting in a hospital room for, you know, 
a whole day, even days at a time. So just being able to, again, bring that human aspect back to the, the, the field was really important to me. So you mentioned that uh, connection that you kind of built with some of the mo- mothers in, in the research. Uh, can you talk about the kinds of stress that the mothers were experiencing? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, they, they all varied. There, there were definitely um, independent situations for each family that we were um, working with. And sometimes, you know, that could have meant that they were living in a home that wasn't uh, very well suited. You know, some of these folks may have had homes that were infested even with like cockroaches. Um, some people didn't have homes and were living in homes with multiple families. And so that in itself is just stressful trying to find a place for your family to stay and be safe and healthy. And beyond just the housing situation, you know, many of these families also had to maintain healthy relationships with the rest of their family, especially if you're living in a home with a lot of people, it's just all around stressful. And and so you could see that these stressful factors reflect in this study in particular, because you can imagine that if you are a child and you're trying to sleep, that you might not get the best sleep if there's a lot of people walking around the house, if there's a lot of light pollution. Um, And so we did notice that during this process. And so those are some of the things that could definitely affect a mother's stress levels. So can you, uh, could you separate out how the baby sleep problems were caused by the stress levels that the mom had during the pregnancy? Yeah. And so, um, During the study, we did measure the child's sleep behavior. So we have uh, some some questionnaires already set in place. So we used a couple of different scales, such as the the child behavioral checklist, so CBCL. Um, And this actually is a scale that is widely used and it's validated. So we use it in toddlers to assess the common reported sleep complaints that we would see in these children. So specifically, we're checking to see if the toddler resists going to bed at night, um, if they don't want to sleep alone, or if they have trouble getting to sleep. Um, You know, if they wake up often in the middle of the night, or if they have nightmares, or if they talk or cry in their sleep. And so we use those factors in understanding the sleep behavior in these children in relation to how the mother and her uh, um and how her stress levels were during her pregnancy and that's where we found the correlation between the two so i want to note that the paper that we've been talking about today will be in our show notes how can our listeners find out more about this or contact you about it so you can look for more information on this subject if you look at some other uh, papers that are related to this new publication. So if you look up, uh, especially Mariah Thomason, who was um, who is the principal investigator on this research project, and you'll be able to find a lot of information and especially about the origins of the fetal brain and how we're mapping out the fetal brain in utero. So this is a pretty big project that she's been working on and you can definitely find out more information that way. 
So we already talked about um, food memories in the hospital. Uh, what are some of your favorite brunches since this is data brunch or the favorite brunch for you? Man, I could always go for a good old tofu scramble. And oh, yes. I know yes. <laughs> it's so good. Um, and hash browns. I'm a big potato fan. So just slap on some potatoes on my plate. Let's call it brunch. All right. Let me know when it's ready. Tofu <laughs> <laughs> scrambles changed my life. <laughs> they did. They are life changing. I mean, mm -hmm. it's so easy to make. So I'm so glad there's another fellow tofu scramble lover here. And tofu Just... scramble with hash browns inside. <laughs> I might have to try that next. <laughs> or like a vegan breakfast burrito. Just wrap it all up in one. Yes. Potatoes and tofu. Oh, and some hot sauce. Yes. <laughs> oh man, I'm hungry. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tamara. I, um, I have a son and I was stressed during pregnancy and I see him having sleep problems. So it is so interesting to hear this and I can't wait to read your whole paper. Um, so a few things coming up from ICPSR. And of course, if you're listening to this episode at a later date, you can always visit icpsr.umich.edu to find out about our upcoming events and our current job listings um, and so much more. Um, but we are so excited. We are hiring. I know I say this every episode, but we're we're actually hiring really a lot. And it's pretty exciting um, to be here because there are so many other places uh, who are having to limit their staff right now. And we are growing. So some of our current open positions, um, we're hiring a lot in the technology area. So we have a associate full stack software engineer a senior digital product designer, a lead DevOps engineer, DevOps is D-E-V-O-P-S, DevOps, and uh, a lead full stack software engineer. Um, so we have those four positions that are open right now. And probably by the time you hear this, we will have another uh, position or two posted. So please do check those out. Um, our summer program is beginning in May, and our early bird tuition rates are open through May 1st, so make sure you get your registration in now. Um, and just like last time, we are still open to nominations for our council, which is our executive committee um, for ICPSR as a whole, and as well for our ICPSR awards, which are for distinguished work in the social sciences. And you can find more information about that on our website. And we would absolutely love to hear your nominations. This is a great way for us to get um, some really incredible voices recognized. Um, and then finally, we want to give a special congratulations to our very first ever guest that we had on Data Brunch. Shane Redman is now Dr. Shane Redman. Congratulations, Dr. Redman. Congratulations. We're so excited for you. Um, so Dr. Redman successfully defended his dissertation um, just a few days ago, and uh, we're so excited for you. Congratulations, Shane. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks for being with us. So we are really looking forward to our next episode. We get to talk to one of our colleagues over here at the University of Michigan Institute for Social Research, who is studying how cruise ships and tourism 
can affect the economic status of women in third world countries. Um, it just sounds fascinating. So we're really looking forward to that. Um, and of course, for links to data and everything else that we talked about today, please visit our show notes, which are at icpsr.umich.edu. And if you aren't already, subscribe to us where you get your podcasts. Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and more. And thank you, as always, to the ICPSR membership. This podcast would not be possible without the ICPSR members. And if you're new to ICPSR, we are a member organization. So we have about 800 member institutions around the world. Um, and chances are, if you are a student or if you're a researcher, if you're affiliated with an institution, you may already be a member. So go to icpsr.umich.edu to find that out. Um, and again, thank you, because we absolutely could not do this work uh, if it wasn't for you. I second that. Thank you, ICPSR members. And if anyone wants to get in touch with the Data Brunch team, you can reach us by visiting our website, icpsr.umich.edu, or emailing us at icpsr-podcast at umich.edu. Thanks, everyone. I'm Anna. And I'm Dory, and thanks for joining us at ICPSR's Data Brunch.